Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of the early mafia, decades before the mob as we know it formed. First, he tells the story of two crime families battling it out in New Orleans, and a police officer who tried to take them down. Then he tells the story of Joseph Petrosino and his efforts to stop the Black Hand. It is history that deserves to be remembered. Without further ado, let me introduce The History Guy. On October 16, 1890, New Orleans Police Chief David Hennessy was shot to death while walking home. His death would spur violence, mass arrests, and suspicion of Italian-American immigrants who seemed to be part of a sinister criminal conspiracy of which few Americans had heard at the time, called the Mafia. Hennessy's life would have a lot to do with these early Mafia organizations that controlled the New Orleans docks, and his death would lead to a notorious trial, followed by an infamous example of mob justice. It is history that deserves to be remembered. David C. Hennessy was born in New Orleans in 1858. His father, also named David, served the Union in the Civil War with the 1st Louisiana Cavalry. After the war, he joined the Metropolitan Police, a force allied with the federal government and not the city, which helped enforce Reconstruction. For unknown reasons, in 1869, Hennessy entered a bar with a former policeman named Arthur Guerin, a nativist who had been dismissed from the force for violent behavior. The two were known to have a feud, but were apparently on good terms in 1869. An argument broke out, and Guerin pulled a gun and shot him three times in the chest. Guerin was charged, but got off on a verdict of justifiable homicide. David Jr. and his mother were soon destitute, but the superintendent of the Metropolitan Police, Algernon Badger, under whom his father had served during the war, took on David Jr. as a messenger boy in 1870 at only 12 years old, providing an income for the family. Hennessy soon became a rising star. As a teenager, he physically beat and collared two adults in the middle of a robbery. By age 20, he was a detective, recklessly headstrong about the law. The Metropolitan Police Force was disbanded in 1877 with the end of Reconstruction, and a new police force was created under Chief Thomas Boylan. Hennessy was retained as a detective. In 1881, at 23, he was handpicked to track down a Sicilian brigand, Giuseppe Esposito. Esposito had been the leader of a group of bandits in the Sicilian hills. Five years earlier, he had helped kidnap an Englishman in Sicily and demanded a ransom from his English family. According to legend, along with the note, they sent one of the poor man's ears. The British government was furious, but Italy was reluctant to do anything about it. After they received the other ear, his family in England paid the ransom, and the prisoner was released. The Italians did have soldiers in the area, however, and cornered the gang, killing numerous leaders and eventually forcing Esposito to turn himself in. This may have been the end of the story, except that as Esposito was on his way to trial... He escaped. From there, he fled to France and finally the United States, where he set up shop in New Orleans. According to Chief Boylan, an Italian diplomat approached him about tracking Esposito down. Boylan put David Hennessy and his cousin Mike on the job. 
Esposito had taken on a new last name, but was otherwise not especially cautious and was said to fly a bandit flag occasionally. He became associated with Joe Provenzano, the leader of an Italian family that controlled rackets within the New Orleans docks. Hennessy tracked down Esposito, got permission to arrest the man and get him quickly sent by sea to New York to prevent him from escaping again. Mike and David scooped up Esposito as he walked across the plaza outside the St. Louis Cathedral in the French Quarter on July 5, 1881, and threw him on a boat. Esposito would be extradited to Italy, where he was jailed for life. His absence would lead to a split in the mafia organization in New Orleans, however, which would play a large role in Hennessy's life. Meanwhile, trouble was brewing in the police force of New Orleans. The reform-minded mayor, Joseph Shakespeare, was at odds with the city council, and the council disliked Boylan. They created a new position called Chief of Aids, which oversaw the city's detectives. They named Thomas Devereaux to the job, who, like many police of the period, had a violent past. Devereaux and Boylan were having a public break just days before the Hennessys arrested Esposito. Boylan told reporters that the detective's office was in chaos thanks to Devereaux. Devereaux argued that Boylan was encouraging the chaos. Boylan and Hennessy had their own allegations of corruption. One of Boylan's former partners ran a private police force, and Devereaux accused Boylan of keeping the police department weak to drive business to the private force. The more degenerate the police become, the more profitable for the agency, Devereaux charged. Devereaux's end would come from his attempt to destroy Dave and Mike Hennessy. He accused the pair of dereliction of duty, and Mike was even censured by the police board, but Devereaux couldn't prove his allegations. He alleged that his witnesses had been tampered with. David Mike were cleared of wrongdoing while Devereaux was convicted of oppression in office, insubordination, and unofficer-like conduct. He was suspended from duty. On October 31st, 1881, the day after he was convicted of the charge, Devereaux was in a brokerage house discussing investments when Mike Hennessy approached from outside. What happened next remains a matter of debate, but one or both pulled their weapons. The brokers dove for cover, and Mike was shot in the face, shattering his teeth and jaw. Devereaux aimed again at the detective, but apparently didn't see that Dave had pulled his own weapon and shot Devereaux in the head from point-blank range. Rumors and accusations abounded. Devereaux's friends said that it was an ambush, while friends of the Hennessy said David had never even fired his gun. David was arrested and charged with murder. Witnesses couldn't decide who fired first or if Mike had approached with his weapon drawn. David claimed that he had just been walking by, and Devereaux was known as quarrelsome. Several witnesses claimed that they heard Devereaux threaten to kill the Hennessys if he was convicted at the police board. The Hennessys were acquitted, but lost their police jobs. Mike went to Texas, and David went into private detective work. In his private work, Hennessy seems to have been very successful. He handled security for the New Orleans World Fair in 1884, and the New York Times wrote that the security officers were neatly uniformed and are a fine-looking and intelligent body of men, far superior to the regular city force. In fact, the police force had regained an awful reputation. Boylan resigned. Shakespeare was voted out, and City Hall and the Ring, which controlled it, used the force as a private army. The New York Times reported that the New Orleans police were a mild and feeble folk, apparently harmless and useless. Boylan took over his friend's private agency and made Hennessy superintendent. With the police useless, private security was in high demand. In the 1888 elections, reform was back on the ballot, and Shakespeare was again on the ballot as well. He was elected and quickly made Dave his new superintendent of police. 
Hennessy went about reforming the force, fired much of the old force. He ordered new uniforms and instituted physical and educational tests for the first time in years. Despite relative wealth, he continued to live in a shabby house with his mother. Esposito's disappearance had split the Italians into two groups, a group following Joe Provenzano and another following Charles and Tony Mantranga. The Mantrangas had taken over the docks and slashed pay to Italian workers. In 1890, Tony Matranga lost his leg when he and several others were ambushed on the street. Thus began the vendetta. Usually the Italian immigrants didn't like to go to the police to solve their problems, relying instead on themselves for justice. But Mantranga went after the Provenzanos hard, and six, including the leader, Joe, were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. From the jail, Joe railed against the verdict, saying that the attackers must have been some laborers who didn't think the Matrangas were giving them a square deal. The fight wouldn't end there. There was evidence the Matranga's witnesses had committed perjury, and one of the defense witnesses had been murdered before he testified. A new trial was granted in October. Hennessy's role is less certain. He had worked with the prosecution in the trial, but rumors suggested that he decided to target the Matrangas instead, seeing them as the leaders of the criminal mafia. Hennessy was accused of accommodating the Provenzanos. On October 15th, he was walking home from a police board meeting around midnight. As he neared home, several men from across the street opened fire. Hennessy was hit, but he didn't go down, instead returning fire and giving chase until he fell. As he lay bleeding, the chief said one word, a racial slur aimed at Italians. He died at the hospital the following day. The mayor was irate. Arrest every Italian you come across if necessary, he ordered. Charles Matranga and his closest friends had been out that night at the theater and eating dinner. Forty people were arrested on little evidence. Carrying a weapon or a hundred-dollar bill was enough, and one was even arrested for having an ill-fitting suit. One of the arrested men said that he thought the Matranga people were against the chief because Hennessy wanted to set the Provenzanos free. Hennessy's body was carried through the streets two days later with a long procession and thousands of well-wishers. His mother wailed, My son is gone, my only one. The arrests continued, including most of the Matranga leadership, including Charles Matranga. Weeks earlier, a reporter had heard from one of the Matranga people that the chief isn't doing his duty and promised a great surprise, which had never turned up. Mayor Shakespeare promised that these affairs has gone on as long as they can be put up with. The Sicilian who comes here must be an American citizen and subject his wrongs to the remedy of the law of the land, Shakespeare intoned, adding that Hennessy was the victim of Sicilian vengeance and that they must teach these people a lesson they will not forget. In the city, anti-Italian fervor was overflowing. As many as 250 Italians may have been rounded up. One of Hennessy's friends went to the jail and shot one of the accused through the bars. Pre-trial coverage was incredibly negative against the Italians, spurred by racism against Italians in general and especially against Sicilians. A committee of 50 was formed to stamp out foreign murder societies. On January 23rd, the Provenzano men were acquitted in the ambush against the Matrangas. Nineteen men were finally indicted for Hennessy's murder. A trial for nine of them began on February 16th, 1891. Hundreds of people had been combed through for the jury. They had to be non-Italians, not opposed to capital punishment, and not openly prejudiced against Italians. Some were dismissed for saying that they wouldn't convict only on circumstantial evidence. The trial was a national event declared the greatest legal event in New Orleans history. All over the city, people wondered, who killed the chief? Schoolboys chanted it and slung mud at Italians. The outcome of the trial was far from certain. 
Witness after witness quibbled about who they'd seen in the dark, admitting that the streetlights were dim. They couldn't agree on how many assailants there were. Verdicts were called on March 13th. Two of the men were found not guilty automatically as no evidence had been presented against them, including Charles Matranga. Four others were found not guilty by the jury and a mistrial was declared on the remaining three. But all nine were returned to the prison because lying in wait charges remained, though they were certain to be dropped. That night, a crowd of 150 people gathered, calling themselves the Committee on Safety. They called on people to come prepared for action the following day at a statue of Henry Clay near the prison. Rise, people of New Orleans, one paper cried. Alien hands of oath-bound assassins have set the blot of a martyr's blood upon your vaunted civilization. Your laws and the very temple of justice have been bought off, and suborners have caused to be turned loose upon your street the murderers of David C. Hennessy. Accusations that jurors had been paid off abounded. At the statue, William Parkerson shouted for the crowds to set aside the verdict of that infamous jury, every one of whom is a perjurer and a scoundrel. Immediately after the speech, the gathered thousands marched onto the prison. They attacked the prison with a battering ram, and the warden released the 19 Italians from their cells, telling them to hide. One hid in a trash can. Two stuffed themselves into a doghouse. Thousands were outside, but only a handful carried out the killings, led by Parkerson and other city leaders, including politician James Houston, the editor of a newspaper, John Parker, future governor of Louisiana and a future New Orleans mayor. Sixty armed men entered the prison. Two of the men were dragged outside and hanged, then shot. Nine others were killed inside the prison, both filled with bullets. Four of the men had never been tried. Charles Matranga escaped. The survivors were released. The work was rapid and comprehensive. The guilty were stricken. The innocent spared, said one New Orleans newspaper the next morning. It isn't clear that any of the men killed, several of whom had been acquitted, had anything to do with Hennessy's murder. Only one had been proven to even threaten the police chief, and several had no connection with either Italian family. An investigation refused to indict anyone for the lynchings and claimed without evidence that several jurors had been bribed. The grand jury said that the mob was made up of the first best, and even the most law-abiding citizens of the city. The lynchings prompted Italians around the country to protest, but most American newspapers sympathized with the mob. Hennessy, most thought, had been avenged. For most Americans, this was the first time they had ever even heard the word mafia, and the first confirmation that any such organization existed in the United States. Hennessy's death and the violence and chaos that followed has been cited as one of the reasons that the Mafia has rules against killing public figures and law enforcement. At least three of the men who were killed in the mob violence were Italian citizens, and the Italian government was eventually paid an indemnity for their slangs. For a while, some newspapers feared that Italy might actually go to war over the lynchings. And the newspaper, the New Orleans Delta, optimistically, though as it turns out, entirely prematurely proclaimed that the hand of the assassin has been stayed. The mafia, they opined in 1890, is a thing of the past. Special thanks to the Mob Museum, the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. You know, both of these episodes are kind of about the the pre-mob or maybe the the proto-mob, and 
it's really these kind of organized crime things that existed before kind of the mafia as we know it. Uh, but I, one of the things I think you notice is that, you know, with David Hennessy, a lot of the cops were almost as corrupt as the, uh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that really strikes you is that, you know, when they ended up capturing all these people, I mean, it's not even clear if any of the people that they captured actually yeah, had the anything. Yeah, ended up, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, that Hennessy was kind of seen as, you know, a clean cop as far as it goes. But it's there was a lot of corruption. Yes. I think he was considered a comparatively clean cop. And his to the extent that he was taking sides might literally have been him trying to see what, you know, deal with who was actually the bigger risk to, you know, the, the people of New Orleans. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little hard to tell exactly, you know, who was. Yeah, well, I mean the the whole story of the mafia can sound uh, uh, can sound critical of Italians, and and you know the you know the idea is not to portray all Italians as criminals, but the idea is to say that the the foundation of this thing we call the American mafia, certainly not organized crime, but this thing we call the mafia, really did come from from Italy and Sicily. It really was a, a cultural carryover, and and you know they, you just can't you can't pretend that way. But it's not to try to claim that you know Italians are inherently you know criminals or violent or anything like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, to some extent, they they really had some reason for for doing that. That's true. Yeah, the the police were not necessarily. I mean, you know, we talked about their corruption a second ago. That, but I mean, it also had a lot to do. You know, the mafia had roots in Sicily, and I mean, these were uh, families that that caused problems. And we see some of that in. Uh, in in this episode where we talk mm-hmm. about how they you know how they went back and how it formed you know uh, well of the, of the American the founding yeah. of the American mafia or, or or what comes what would become the American mafia at a time when uh, the country really was not familiar with the concept or most Americans would have no idea what mafia means yeah well I mean they really did until the Kefauver committees yeah so I mean yeah or even after that so this this is I mean both of these occur before the mafia era. Uh, but the, but they're both talking about the sort of the organization and culture that would turn into the the, the mafia, uh, and yeah, you know I think a lot of people are surprised you know that uh, the uh, amount of that that occurred in New Orleans, uh, because I think I think you know we tend to think of mafia as being like a New York Chicago thing and attached to prohibition, and that actually these precursors came uh, much earlier, and that, that one of the central places actually even at the height of the of the matter of fact even maybe today I don't want to get in trouble with organized crime uh, that that uh, New Orleans has always been a center. Of, of activity of this sort of organized secret organization uh, of, of organized crime. Certainly not, you know, there's crime everywhere you go. But I mean, this, the thing that we call the mafia, the thing that we call, uh, you know, the organized crime syndicates, uh, this was, both of these stories talk about where those kind of came from. And uh, both of them associated at the time with Italian immigration. Uh, not to say, I mean, certainly we're not trying to argue that Italians are you know, criminals or anything like that. It's, it's to say, though, but that this this sort of culture where, you you know, you solve your own problems, you don't work with the authorities. I mean, part of that is, is cultural to Italy. And part of that is simply the experience that Italian immigrants had uh, in the United States at a time when they were facing, you know, certainly dis- discrimination and therefore, you know, had reasons not to trust the civil authorities, and that that could give rise to something like this secret organization, where literally loyalty to the organization is more important than you know law, crime, justice, that sort of thing, and yeah, and so they you know they didn't trust police, and in, in this particular case, uh, the police that challenged them, you know, wound up uh, 
wound up with spectacular funerals. Yeah, you know, this a lot of it has to do with with this this kind of experience of Italians as mm-hmm. they came in, mm-hmm. uh, they who and they I mean they that's why they were part of why they were so insular, and it was uh, difficult for for them to then you know allow these people who they didn't really trust. Uh, the police were mm-hmm. not necessarily as, and we see a lot on this episode that the the police were not necessarily. Uh, uh, interested in public safety as much as they were uh, interested in i mean these these stories both of them actually talk about you know how the police fit into the role and and whether talking straight up corruption or whether they're just simply talking about you know a different the police having a different interest uh in mind i mean i'm not sure exactly how to put that i mean both straight up corruption too i mean there's 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 roles here where certainly they were serving their own interest or that they were actively working with criminal elements or you know in in new orleans they might have been literally seeking civil disorder so that they could tell civil yeah. service, you know, a, a private you know, security yeah. services. And I, you know, I would imagine there are people that still, you know, are arguing that sort of thing happens today. Uh, but, uh, you know, in this case, I mean, it really, it really puts some context to it. I mean, there's a lot of context to what, you know, what allowed the growth of the, the Cosa Nostra. And I mean, yeah. we've done lots of videos and we work with the, with the mob museum in Las Vegas. They're great people, by the way, if you go to Las Vegas, you got to visit the mob museum. It's, it's, it's the, the best thing that you can visit in Las Vegas. Uh, but I mean, the, the, the growth of that, you, you can't divorce it from the Italian, the, the Italian immigrant experience. Cause I, yeah. it, it, you know, in early America, there was very little Italian immigration. I mean, there were very, very low. They were, there were less than a thousand Italian, Italian immigrants in New York City in the 1850s, uh, and that was it. Mostly came you know later in the century, uh, and you know that drove a lot of the you know anti-immigrant backlash that came as there was such a, a huge amount of yeah. immigration in that century. And also, you know, you imagine coming here, you don't you, you know you don't speak the language, and uh, you know you're going to group together with people who speak your language and understand your culture, and that creates an insular culture. And one of the things that that can allow is your own way of you know enforcing justice. Uh, which can become your own way of running crime, and that's kind of where it comes from. So it's the the, the Hennessy story is such an interesting story because it really talks about how American law first enforcement is first experiencing this, uh, and also how the Italian immigrant experience is driving this, uh, and how it leads to because it's not it's not just a clean story. It's not a you know white headed cops no. are fighting evil evil mobsters. Uh, I mean, you find a lot of reasons here. You know why there's questions, of, and matter of fact, even even in the very end, I mean, I think Hennessy is presented as, as as being you know, especially compared to what came before him, relatively clean. Yeah. But you know, even in the end, he ends up in sort of in the middle of a mob war because he is, for various reasons, kind of at least perceived as taking sides in the mob war, and you know, whether yeah. whether that was for some personal interest or because he thought that was with was best for the city or whatever. But uh, I mean, I, 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 you know, history occurs; we don't necessarily judge it. Uh, yeah. But it it is. I mean, this it is. For not being, I think, terribly well known, his murder. I mean, it really does represent the beginning of the mob era in America. It is the, yeah. the first really understanding uh, that there's this organized crime syndicate and that they are literally a, a threat to our civil authorities. That the you know the police don't necessarily yeah. scare them, uh, and and that's that's an important piece of history. It would represent a lot of criminal history in America for decades to come. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this might have had some significant influence in that it might be part of why, uh, you know, they avoided trying to uh, kill people like police commissioners mm-hmm. and superintendents and stuff that would, mm-hmm. would bring so much. Although ultimately, it was less the police that, that I think scared them into that than, you know, this, this mob justice, mm-hmm. kind of this, this idea that, oh, the public will rise up against you. And it's like, oh, it's better. It's more profitable if we just kind of 
Yeah, if we keep our <laughs> avoid. And you know, that's I mean, those are significant themes. Uh, you know, in the in the Godfather movie, saying I don't, yeah. I don't know those necessarily represent you know history or anything like that. But I mean, it, you can see why the organization started to establish the rules that it established, yeah. uh, and then you know those how they started run afoul of those rules. When you look at other videos that we've done, like the uh, uh, the uh, the Costa Nostra meeting. Um, well, yep. yeah, in Indian Eclipse, right? Was that? But uh, uh, at Appalachian, the Appalachian meeting, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, where you know, whenever you stepped outside those rules and brought attention to yourself, then you know there was a reason yep. that that was that was a problem. So that it's you can see really the story arc beginning here. This is really the very yeah. beginning, uh, even before things like this Schofield flower, flower Shop murder, which you know started the the mob wars in Chicago during Prohibition yep. and stuff like that. Is that you know this is this is where the foundation of it starts to come in both the development of the criminal organization and the, the national consciousness of that organization, and also the, uh, the the law enforcement response to to the organization. Yep. And it's it's really an interesting story. It takes some twists and turns. Uh, and the ending is is a bit of, of a surprise, uh, and uh, and yeah. you know the you know fact that uh, the only ones that were convicted of it are probably the ones who didn't do it. Also, just kind of shows. <laughs> yeah, the, well, of the of the group that was you know in the prison, the only one who honestly might have had anything to do with it, and he probably didn't pull the trigger, is the the head of the the Matranga guys. Uh, uh, he gets away. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he's he's fine. So that the, of the dozen people that they actually uh, captured or you know had in the prison and that were killed, and most of them probably, I mean, they might not have had anything to do with it. I, mean, I don't even know if they were. I mean, several of them were acquitted because they no evidence was presented against them. I mean, there was. Yeah. There was clearly some problems with their. Well, with I mean, the I'm, case. I'm sure there are times when you know who did it, you don't have the evidence. I mean, if you look yeah. at, you know, if you watch true crime shows, you see a lot of that. But I mean, yeah. in this case, I mean, they they really were, you know, just kind of it was kind of round up the usual suspects, you know, and, and so they just canvassed the Italians. Yeah, basically, It's, it's <laughs> not a surprise. Well, they, they were arresting, you know, everybody at some point. The, the one yeah. guy was wearing the uh, ill-fitting suit or whatever, but uh, yeah, like, oh, yeah, I mean, you, you can see like how, how, difficult it, how difficult it is to enforce the law, even when it's something is yeah. you know, with as much priority as someone shot the police, the chief of police dead, you know, from in, across in the street. The street. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they, and who has any idea if any of the people, that they yeah. any of anybody the involved. Well, I don't know if anything. any of them were served any sort of justice whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, uh, really, 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 just crazy. Uh, but it's the, this whole story. You know, we get yeah. this. I, I mean, the the police was fairly rough and tumble. Mm -hmm. I mean, his dad gets killed in a yeah, his bar dad fight just with a shot in the chest, and they don't convict the guy. That's crazy. Justifiable because homicide. Just, yeah, that's I'm a crazy to figure story. Out how exactly? Uh, yeah, I mean the whole story about days. how he comes to power and, and how they yeah. you know they respond to you know clearly uh, corrupt you know uh, corruption in the in the department and yeah uh, and, uh, and and I mean what you would at least say of Hennessy is that he was probably relatively uh, yeah. a, a clean, still, not corrupt, but I mean still he seems to you know well, when he shot that that other. Uh, that other uh, what, officer, the, mm -hmm. the 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 other detective guy. Mm -hmm. Although that detective had also apparently just shot his brother, so yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot going on. And, uh, you, know, you would hope. I, I don't know. I'm sure that when someone listens to this, they'll be saying, "Oh, that's still going on today." But I mean, it's uh, it certainly was uh, a, a rough and tumble time, even among uh, law yeah. enforcement at the time. And you know, rules were different. I think all around. Uh, and again, it makes it, I mean, sometimes history is just a good story. This is just a, it's a good story. Yeah. It's an interesting story to hear it all the way comes through, uh, ending with a whodunit when we, you know, we don't really know who yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That they, we, we come to the end and we, we don't know who shot him. He was kind of a, I mean, he was an interesting, an interesting guy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not exactly sure. You come out of it not 100% sure exactly who he was. I mean, yeah. I don't think we have as much 
uh, information about him as but, we might like. But what we but, know is that he was high enough profile. He was liked enough that his yeah. death changed how the nation, how law enforcement perceived organized crime, yeah. and also changed how organized crime operated. And so it really is an yeah. important piece of history. Uh, and I think a piece of history that's you know, relatively unknown. I think when you, people talk about you know mob murders or whatever, that's not one of them that I think many people are familiar with. And so, and by the way, Josh wrote this particular script, uh, and uh, it's a great script. And there's a reason that I appreciate that Josh works with the channel because it's it's always great when you find you know pieces of history that are very important yeah. uh, and uh, that aren't necessarily well known because history deserves to be remembered. Yeah. Well, and this is you know this is a person who had a, some significant impact, uh, and I mean, there's so many of those people that we end up you know forgetting. Um, it's 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 hard to just I mean we've made what. Almost a thousand videos, something like yeah, that, and it's it's hard to keep all that information in your head. Maybe the nine hundreds by now, at least. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, yo, we'll never run out of forgotten history. I don't think that's the problem. <laughs> no, there's. Yeah. I've never run out of topics. Usually, yeah. the problem is I've got so many topics yeah, that choosing one is the, it's plenty, the hard. Plenty to talk about. That's, that's in the truth. If you like The History Guy, you like listening to our podcasts or watching our videos, uh, there are numerous ways that you can support us. And one of those ways is that you can become a patron on Patreon. Uh, that is a way to uh, get some get some money directly to us that's not through advertising money. And in exchange, you get some you get videos early, you get them ad free. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also there's some other there's some other stuff depending on what what how much money you're willing to give us monthly. And there's some other perks. <laughs> that's true. We, uh, send, we send some coins and we say I mean, we, there's there's a lot of perks. But really what it is, is just a way to uh, give some extra support for what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah we produce a lot of. Uh, a lot of documentaries and we know that there's people that appreciate our work i think both as as uh, education and as art uh, and if you think that that's worth a couple of dollars a month it really makes a big difference to us uh in how we're able to pay employees and keep producing the history that we produce so that's that's patreon.com slash the history guy or just look up the history guy on patreon uh if there are other places too we have a community on locals you can become a, a supporter on uh, youtube you can become a financial supporter on youtube uh, patreon's a central place for you to do that and one of the things you know that you're going to get is that if uh, if we have any video that's got internal advertising where we've sold a sponsor, you'll get a version of that without the sponsor, and you'll usually get that early because as soon as it's ready, I put it up. Uh, and it's just, it's a great place. Uh, you can also communicate with a history guy. And, and uh, so that's, it's a great way if you like what we're doing uh, for you to be able to give, you know, you know, a couple of dollars a month really does make a difference for us. Next up, the history guy tells the story of Joseph Petrosino and the Black Hand. New York City is a city of immigrants. According to a survey done between 2007 and 2011, 37% of the residents of New York City were born outside the United States. The city contains more than 3 million foreign-born immigrants, more than any other city on Earth. And it's been that way almost since the start for New York City. But of course, the melting pot has not always melted smoothly. Around the turn of the last century, there was a large influx of Italian immigrants into New York City. They brought with them their hopes and dreams, but also connections to criminal organizations in the old world. They called themselves the Black Hand, and they terrorized New York City and other large metropolis in the early part of the 20th century. The story of one fellow immigrant who bucked tradition and fought and died to stop that reign of terror deserves to be remembered. Born Giuseppe Petrosino, Joe Petrosino immigrated from Padula, Italy to the United States in 1873 when he was 13 years old. 
Petrosina's early years in America have been a subject of debate, but what scholars do agree on is that he and his family faced prejudice from the people and different nationalities already living in New York City, notably the Irish, who had footholds not only in the political structure of Tammany Hall, but also the police department. Italian-American boys and girls were harassed by Irish children on their way to and from school. Petrosino became known as someone who wouldn't back down from a fight. If anyone threw a rock at him, Petrosino would run at them, throwing punches. If they continued to harass him, he'd bang their heads into the sidewalk until they relented. He dropped out of school after sixth grade and began to work as a shoe shiner on the streets. But Petrosino was certain that shining shoes was not going to be his future. A friend, Anthony Maria, later said, One afternoon Petrosino seemed to snap, and he smashed his shoe shine box to pieces on the pavement. He said, Tony, I won't shine shoes anymore. I'm going to be somebody. After that revelation, Petrosino became a street cleaner, carting, among other things, the refuse of an estimated 150,000 horses used in New York City, at the time, off the streets. He must have been good at his job because he was noticed by Alec Clubber Williams, an Irish police inspector who was remembered mainly for his corruption. Williams ran the streets he patrolled, giving permission to the different businesses and criminals to operate there. Williams is heard to brag, I'm so well known here in New York that car horses nod to me in the mornings. Williams wanted Petrosino to become a police officer, but Petrosino was only 5 foot 3 inches tall, and at the time the requirement was that a man be 5 foot 7 inches tall in order to join the force. But Williams used his connection to get Petrosino through, and he became one of the first Italian-American officers in the New York Police Department in 1883. He received the shield number 285. He was an excellent policeman. Petrosino had a photographic memory and could recall thousands of different names, faces, and crimes without having to refer to files. He spoke nearly a half dozen different dialects and could talk to nearly any Italian in New York City, which grew from a population of a mere 830 Italian immigrants in the 1850s to almost 500,000 in 1910. He wasn't afraid to dress up in costumes to confuse criminals as to his identity or take up jobs to earn the trust of those he was investigating. Author Stephen Talty reported that Petrosino wouldn't just pose as a worker or miner to crack a case, he would go out and become one. In one year, Petrosino set a New York City Police Department record for the time of 17 homicide convictions. He became so well known that it was said in order to make an arrest, all Petrosino had to do was walk up to the criminal and say, I am Petrosino, and they would give up without a fight. But Petrosino's position as a police officer didn't make him popular in his own neighborhood. Shouts of fresh parsley for sale would follow him down the street. Petrosino means parsley in Italian. Others said parsley will make the American police taste better, but indigestible it will always be. The Italian immigrants of New York City behaved that way because Petrosino had broken an unwritten code of Italian life. Honor and fidelity went to family and community first, never the authorities or outsiders, both of which the Italian immigrants believed the New York Police Department to be. They had their reasons for believing as they did. Italian immigrants were not treated very well at the time. For example, Italian immigrants formed a large part of the labor force, but were not necessarily reimbursed equally to their Irish or American counterparts. When a mine explosion killed 16 workers, all immigrants, at the Lawson Mine in Washington in 1910, families of Irish workers killed were reimbursed $1,200 for the death of their family member. Italian-American families were given only $150. Some scholars estimate that 25% of industrial accidents at the turn of the century in the United States involved Italian-American immigrants. And this discrepancy in treatment was partially why the Black Hand, which has been called a precursor to the Italian Mafia, was able to take advantage of the Italian community. 
The black hand, so-called because extortion letters usually included a drawing of a black hand, was not so much an organization, but a method of extortion used by various criminal groups. They preyed upon those who wouldn't or couldn't report the crimes against them to the authorities. Not only did the Italian-Americans believe the police wouldn't care if they reported the crimes, they did not want to be seen as traitors to their own race, like Patrocino was. Black hand operations were numerous. They extorted Italian-owned businesses and bombed those who didn't pay. They kidnapped children for ransom and sent threatening letters covered in cryptic crosses and black hand prints, the origin of their name. In some small cities outside of New York, black hand criminals ran the entire local government and would send a representative to collect payment from entire labor groups on payday. A miner would pick up his check and immediately hand over however much was demanded to the black hand. Reporters from the New York Times wrote, The money collected was understood to be the price of life and liberty until next payday. Supposedly, even the United States Congress received black hand threats. Members were frantic until the letters were revealed to be a publicity stunt by a company hawking its soap and playing on the black or dirty hand to sell their wares. Despite the real dangers posed by the criminals perpetrating the crimes, the public couldn't get enough of the black hand. The sale of merchandise, like stationery that had stylish black hands printed on them to send to their friends, skyrocketed, as well as newspapers selling stories of the brutality and bombings by the black hand. Some even cashed in on the notoriety of the black hand to try to extort money out of their relatives or business associates. The son of John Bazzuffi, an Italian banker, was kidnapped by the black hand. They demanded $20,000 or they're going to kill Bazzuffi's son. Bazzuffi refused to be blackmailed and brought the information to Petrosino. But word spread around the Italian neighborhood that Bazzuffi was going to drain the accounts at the bank to pay the black hand. In response, there was a run on the bank. Bazzuffi, who was instructed to post a sign in the window of his bank detailing how he was going to pay the ransom to the black hand, defiantly posted, The money in this bank belongs to the depositors, and it will be paid to them, even if I never see my son again. He eventually got his son back, but the damage had already been done to both his business and his reputation. Exact numbers of those targeted by the Black Hand in New York are impossible to estimate as so many of the victims of the crimes refused to talk to authorities. To deal with the increasing disaster, Petrosino created what was essentially a special task force called the Italian Squad, or the Mysterious Six. These men were handpicked by Petrosino for not only their ability to speak Italian, but also their investigative skills. The squad's mission was to deal with the peculiar problems constantly arising in the Italian districts. They didn't have many resources to do so, but they were dedicated in their mission. In just one year of operations by the Italian squad, black hand crimes in New York City dropped by an estimated 50%. The Washington Post called them a band of zealots, and they were certainly zealous. They, for example, figured out how to identify black hand cells by the handwriting on their notes. When the black hand criminals found out what was going on, they started using typewriters to try to conceal their identity. To counter the bomb-making terrorism of the Black Hand, which was rife in Italian neighborhoods, Petrosino created the New York City Police Department Bomb Squad, which was one of the first organizations of its kind in the United States. He continued to innovate, even though his superiors and fellow lawmen didn't necessarily support him in every endeavor. In another break with tradition, Petrosino was never accused of taking a bribe. Few on the New York City Police Department at the time could say the same. The press loved Petrosino for his candidness and also the number of newspapers they sold as he fought the black ant. One night, a reporter went to Petrosino's home to get a quote for his story, which was to be printed the next day. The reporter stood in the shadows of the hall near the doorway to Petrosino's home. When Petrosino showed up, he saw someone standing in the hall and charged him in a manner reminiscent of his school brawling days. He knocked the wind out of the reporter, who immediately declared his identity and what he was doing there. Later, the reporter remembered Petrosino saying, Someday... 
they will get me. Petrosino had reasons to be cautious. After a decade of careful courting, Petrosino married the love of his life, a widow named Adelina. According to the family's oral tradition, Petrosino met Adelina when she was a waitress at her father's restaurant. He was smitten with her and asked her father for permission to marry her. Adelina's father, Vincenzo Salino, refused to allow the match, saying that she had already lost a husband and a career in law enforcement was simply too risky. Salino feared Petrosino would die and leave his daughter alone again. It didn't deter the lovers, and after Salino died, the two were wed. They had a child together, a daughter, and they named her Adelina after her mother. Petrosino was fiercely protective of his child, going to great lengths to not even acknowledge her on the street so that the criminals he pursued wouldn't know who she was or her importance to him. In 1909, Petrosino was sent to Italy to gather original criminal files for nearly a thousand suspected criminal immigrants in New York City, as well as to cultivate a network of informants for the New York City Police Department overseas. He was also tasked with learning who the most dangerous criminals in Italy were and forwarded their names to the immigration services in New York. If those men ever attempted to cross the Atlantic, they would be turned back at the border by immigration services before entering the country. But a New York City police commissioner had given the story of Petrosino's mission to a New York newspaper while Petrosino was abroad. Sadly for Petrosino, hundreds, if not thousands, of the black hand suspects he'd evicted from New York City were waiting for him in Italy. On a rainy night in March in the Italian town of Caltanissetta, Petrosino was shot dead by unknown assailants. Joseph Petrosino's body was returned to the United States, and the day of his funeral, April 12, 1909, was proclaimed a public holiday in New York City, and an estimated 250,000 mourners lined the streets to see the lawmen laid to rest. By comparison, only 100,000 came for the funeral of Rudolf Valentino, the internationally famous film star, when he died in 1926. The body of Petrosino was taken from his home to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and then to a cemetery in Queens where he was buried. His heartbroken wife, Adelina, was heard sobbing at the funeral. Even after his death, Petrosino continued to impact the New York City Police Department, which cracked down on the remaining black-hand criminals and finally broke their power. Crime-fighting techniques that were pioneered by Joseph Petrosino are still used by police departments today, and the man who fought against all odds to do what he believed was right for the country that he had adopted as his own remains to this day to be the only New York City police officer to have died in the line of duty outside the United States. But perhaps the, the nature of Petrosino's character is best seen in what he had on his body after he was murdered. On his body they found in his pockets his original New York City Police Department badge, number 285, and a postcard addressed to his family that said, A kiss for you and for my little girl, who has spent many months far away from her daddy. You know, so we mentioned in the last one, we talked about how, you know, the immigrant experience is a is a core part of kind of what these stories tell. And in, in Petrosino's case, you know, he uh, he was a part of that i mean he was mm -hmm. an italian and this was part of his uh, mm -hmm. uh identity and it was difficult for him uh, to to you know go join the police because it's quite clear that people thought of him as a as a traitor um yeah i mean they, i mean two different things there one is that the police were overwhelmingly irish uh and it was difficult yeah. for an italian to get into the police department and the other is that the italian immigrant community overwhelmingly didn't trust the police which were overwhelmingly yeah. irish uh, and therefore they saw an italian <laughs> a police officer as being uh, you know a, a turncoat uh, and that's i mean yeah. what fresh fresh parsley for sale and uh, yelling down the street that that was them yelling that, they, that he was coming down the street uh, yeah, and so the... i mean when you when you talk about 
I mean, again, it's always difficult to sort of completely sort what's going out at the time. But when you talk about someone who yeah. who really seemed to simply believe in the cause of law and order, uh, even uh, if that was, you know, causing risk to himself and, and to his family, uh, that's Joe Petrosino. I mean, he's, he's just, for being a guy who was not, not very tall, he was certainly a stand-up guy. Yeah. He was originally too short <laughs> to get into the police department. Uh, and it's because he was kind of recruited in by a fairly notoriously corrupt police officer, and, and he became yeah. this fairly notoriously uh, uncorrupt detective, uh, and also just an amazing detective. I mean, just, just yeah. uh, straight-up detective skills. Well, and he, you know, he's a, he's apparently an incredibly unique person. I mean, he was very intelligent, uh, incredibly perceptive. He was, and I, I guess you're glad that someone saw that in him, although the, you're right, the guy who saw it was not exactly someone who you think yeah. would see uh, brilliant <laughs> police work and be like... famous as the sort of shakedown <laughs> police officer. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, but I mean, it changed the New York City Police Department and it certainly yeah. changed uh, how they saw. You had this... Uh, beginnings of the mafia before the mafia it's you know exactly how they're connected it's difficult but i mean more a direct import though from italy though with the black hand uh which in, in a lot of ways was generally victimizing the italian community yeah. it was it was really very insular and the, the department was having great difficulty dealing with that because no one would share with police no one would break the cut yeah. of silence they were afraid of what would happen if they did they you know even the victims were afraid to come forward and because he was yeah. part of the culture he was able to go make a make a significant difference there uh and yeah. that, but it also again is another part of the story so we're just starting to understand uh what's going on yeah. with with the insular italian mafia uh and uh, how you know they can through a, a code of conduct and a set of rules how they can essentially evade the way that we yeah. engage in police activity in america i think that probably no one in history saw the contradiction and difficulty there more than joe petrosino yeah yeah, he was in a he was in a difficult position, and you, you can see. I mean, you you mentioned in this episode that you know there was like a, an accident among uh, workers, and you know they paid the Ita they paid the Italian families less money yeah, straight up for less the money deaths of the. the I, I mean, that's yeah. I, literally the like these these lives are worth. See, if less, you understand the I, Irish immigrant experience, it's actually it's, it's crazy that at this point. You know that they're seen as, as you know as a preferred immigrant group uh, versus the Italian, and that you know we you know we just didn't see this. Immigration comes in waves, and when it comes in waves, you know the, the you know people are here already. There's 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 typically going to be some backlash, uh, and it's yeah. interesting how that gave rise to the Italian version of organized crime. There wasn't there wasn't yeah. organized crime among uh, the Irish either, uh, or that they weren't eventually you know part of the you know same yeah. same process. But uh, it does you know you, you you can't divorce our experience with the the mafia organization in America without understanding the Italian immigrant yeah. experience. And the interesting thing about Petrosino is that he was on the other side of that as a New York City police officer. And and oh, it's, a, it's a pugnacious certainly... one. But I mean, imagine living a life yeah. where you can't acknowledge your child, you can't hug your child in 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 public because you know that it would put your child at risk. I mean, that was that was the it's extent to which. Uh, he was willing to, you know, do what he thought was right, uh, despite the risk that he was looking at. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's absolutely, I mean, it's it's frightening, you know, what he was facing. And he clearly knew uh, that what he was facing was dangerous and that there were there were difficulties there that were unique, unique to him. Because I think he also realized that there were people who, you know, hated him particularly because he was betraying. Because he was Even seen though, as, a, as a, you know, a traitor to his own his own people, yeah. Yeah, even though really it's it's uh, I mean you're talking about a problem that was uh, that no one else was solving. Yes, 
and but but I don't know this this idea that you know you don't it was more important that you didn't talk about it yeah even, and you know kept you know, even though <laughs> even though it was mostly Italian immigrants who were having you know yeah. members of the family that were kidnapped and and taken for ransom etc that they they saw you more as a traitor for trying for for yeah. working with the the authorities to address that rather than doing it through through the community yeah. uh, and that that's you know that's that's an interesting time I, I I can't imagine you know what it meant for a police department the way that that police department operated and the way that that police department yeah. I can't imagine how you know the police department was ever going to address that without having someone like yeah. Joe Petrosino come along uh, and and you know, he and he clearly stuck to it I mean he was he was really for a while he's the only person solving that problem at all yeah well, he, had, he created a team. Else. He created a team of himself and some yeah. other, yeah. And I mean, it, it was just something that the department otherwise just wasn't addressing or didn't know how to address. I mean, they were just essentially allowing parts of the city to operate as, you know, lawless parts of the city. Yeah. And it's, and I, that's important. I think, you know, we would talk about today that that's an important part of uh, being a part of the community and stuff is, is an important part of how we deal with policing. Um, and we might, I mean, gosh, some officers might deal with the same kind of stuff where they're, their communities kind of think of them as uh, as you know, stepping yeah, over that line. Of, well, and you know, yeah. in the end, uh, you know, in the end, it caught up with Petrosino. I mean, he was yeah. Know, uh, uh, Tragic. It was, it was an interesting choice to send him to Italy. I think that, uh, and yeah. and it was an interesting choice for that to come out in a way that made it obvious that he was there. And it, you know, it's uh, there's always been this sort of implication that that might not have all been coincidence. Uh, but uh, you know, yeah. however you put it, I mean, he you know he stood for what he he believed was right even though he knew that it put himself at risk uh and that's yeah. you know caught up with him in the end well and i i he you know you talk about that time with the reporter uh, he attacked the reporter who he thought was was there to try to kill him and he he clearly was like they're gonna get me at some point they're yeah. they're and and the thing was you know at some point it's less about what they can win uh you know what advantages they would get from killing him and more about just revenge say he's he was attacking these these people i mean the black hand was making money yeah well <laughs> people I mean, that, that know, was uh, when he said italy i mean he the the black hand that he was catching overwhelmingly yeah. when it's difficult to criminally prosecute people what you did is you you you, you, you know you sent him back to italy yeah, sent uh, him back yeah. to italy and and so you know these people that he was having deported you know they go sit him into yeah. the middle of that you know i mean it, it's it's yeah, they, they were all waiting for him in italy and apparently uh, were warned that he was coming and that's it's also, uh, you know, one of the one of the parts that's really surprising is this idea that uh, people kind of got this like popular boom of like this is a pop culture moment of Black Hand, uh-huh. and people they're they're advertising that's right, advertising, advertising. People are so, buying like yeah Black Hand merch and stuff like that, and it's it's crazy to think about. I mean, it was it seems like it was a fairly serious. Uh, well, I, uh, I think that that. Because it wasn't understood outside of the, the Italian community, yeah. and so it was seen more of as like kind of this romantic. So it didn't I, seem real, yeah. To the, but I mean, there's uh, still the, there's still to an extent that you know the, the 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 mafia is still to an extent romanticized. That's true. Uh, oh, that's fair. I mean, how many movies have we made? And the people, uh, there's a whole gangster, you know, that that kind of gangster look of the the, the top hats and or you know, not the top hats, but the the suits and, yeah, the, and the I fedoras, mean, gosh, yeah. the Sopranos and the yeah. <laughs> uh, and a lot of those really certainly... blur the lines. <laughs> yeah, between between, between you know, whether, what, uh, what's a hero and what's a villain. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, and some of them you know more than others, but certainly uh, certainly uh, there's there's some some wor- some kind of hero worship there. I mean, gosh, Al Capone is famous not just for you know his criminal activities, but for being you know a tough guy and. And it's it's interesting how that how that has kind of happened, especially when I you know there's lots <laughs> they've done a lot of crime. 
they've done a lot of crime. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Al Capone is one that's kind of hard. I mean, he, yeah, he was not a nice. Yeah, fellow. he was. Yeah, not a nice fellow. Uh, and really, uh, most of them, you know, I mean, they were they were talking about places where there was like there was literally a group that called themselves Murder Inc. Yeah, Murder Inc. They yeah. were. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's even, uh, you know, I don't, we never want to get ourselves in, in trouble. I don't think the mafia is going to come after the history guy here. I don't think we're really uncovering so. any great secrets or anything like that. But I mean, it's not like it's, it's not like it's, it is organized crime. I mean, it's not, a, yeah. it's not a civic organization. Uh, and, no. uh, you know, and Petrosino, you know, knew that and, you know, and eventually caught yeah. up with him. And, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that, 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 it, that initial reaction, it's, I mean, it took, a, it took America a very long time. It took Congress a very long time to really believe that this could be going yeah. on. It could be so organized that they actually had, you know, uh, a, a structured organization with a committee yeah. that would get together and a commission that would get together and make decisions and, and set up rules about who you can, yeah. who you can murder and who you can't murder. And uh, that's, I mean, that, uh, that, that was just, it was something that was so inconceivable. Uh, and that's part of, of the reason that you yeah. needed someone like a Joe Petrosino who, who had some sort of inside understanding of how yeah. that could be. And we're willing to on. believe. Yeah. Uh, cause, cause it does sound, I mean, you know, it sounds conspiracy, uh, theory this idea that oh there's like this great huge completely unknown underground cr yeah, yeah. crime syndicate that's you know that's running all this different stuff and like and i mean i can see where you know this idea that there's people pulling all the strings it's a lot easier to say uh, not to say not to use that as an excuse for any conspiracy theory but in this case yeah uh, it, it turned out to be true is that there were there certainly yeah, I mean, were significant least somebody, I mean, maybe we're overstating somehow all the control of the organization etc but that's i mean true. Yeah, that's true it certainly but, turned out to be true i'm kind of surprised that petrosino has not showed up more uh in uh, popular culture that we don't have more representations of, of him in culture because he really was a, he was a central piece uh and you know he, he was i mean in many ways you would say that he, he was more you know important uh, than elliot ness yeah or something like that, who seems to be portrayed. I, I don't mean to, you know, disparage Elliot Ness or anything like that, the Untouchables. Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, Petrosino was, I mean, because he's such an interesting guy, this little, you know, five foot tall, pugnacious man that right. just, that just took on whatever came, uh, you know, no, no matter what. I mean, it seems to me that he would be a great character for fiction. Uh, and yet we don't know his name, uh, nearly as well. And, yeah. you know, that's, again, it's a, it's a good thing that we're bringing up names like Hennessy and, and, and Petrosino. Uh, because they are truly parts of history and truly uh, heroic. I mean, again, it's, you know, history is more interesting than fiction in some ways. Yeah. Well, and it, it actually looks like a, um, they might be, there might be a movie in production or at least in the, the early parts of it about Petrosino, mm -hmm. um, supposedly with DiCaprio on board to, to oh. play Petrosino. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the, what the state of that is. If it's, if it's still moving forward yeah, or not. A little tall uh, I'll have to make him seem shorter. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure, yeah, um, because Petrosino was also kind of short and dark, and, and uh, uh, well, I don't know. I don't want to make any comments. Maybe I'm, he was not. Yeah, the... I'm not going to talk about <laughs> casting in Hollywood. I don't care. It'd be great if they're if they're portraying Joe Joe Petrosino. I, I'm a historian. I'm not. I don't make movies. If they want to hire me as the expert, uh, that would be an awfully foolish thing to do. But I'm available. It's certainly true. You're available. It, yeah, there there might be, be some a, people. Be a ridiculous choice on their part, but you know, if they want to, you know. I uh, would it'll it, if it if it does show up it would be a, I mean it's a, it's a story worth telling so absolutely it's, it's, it's a story one of those worth things. telling it, you know for whatever Hollywood will do with it still I mean he's a name that deserves to be to yeah. deserve to be known and so I I, I would love it if uh, if that would actually turn into something you know and, and you know there's there's something I have, I have to say uh, my video on Bass Reeves came out long before the new series came out which is a lot of fun but not necessarily. Uh, uh, more of a western maybe than a, than a history but i mean 
Uh, it's great that his name is much better known now. I, yeah. I, I will personally yeah, take absolutely. I'm sure that was me entirely. Though. I'll personally take credit for that. So when the when the Petrosino movie comes out, uh, just like the movie came out though too about the uh, the theft of of uh, Goya's Wellington, uh, when those yeah. come out, of course everybody has to realize that Hollywood is clearly watching the History Guy in order to come up with their the next taking all the ideas, monster. everything that everything that we say is stranger than fiction. Everything like, that isn't a superhero is movie was derived from the History Guy. You can <laughs> quote the... me on that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.